Well, hello and welcome to The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and anxiety. My name is Aris Komporosos Afanasiu and I'm an Associate Professor of Sociology at University College London. And my name is Max Haven. I'm Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media and Social Justice at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Canada. On this podcast, we each episode talk to someone who can help shed a new light on the intersections of capitalism and anxiety from a whole variety of different angles. We're seeking to go beyond medical approaches to anxiety and to mental health more generally and explore the way that economic systems both produce and rely on anxiety. This podcast is produced by the Common Anxieties Research Project that Aris and I co-direct with the support of University College London's Institute for Advanced Studies and the Reimagining Value Action Lab. For more information, you can visit anxious.community. And so today, in today's episode, we are delighted to be joined by Juliet Jakes. Um, Welcome, Juliet. Hi. Juliet is a writer and filmmaker based in London. She has published two books, Rainer Heppenstall, A Critical Study in 2007, and Trans, A Memoir by Verso in 2015. She has contributed to volumes published by Penguin, Influx Press, and others. She writes short fiction, journalism, essays, and criticism on literature, film, art, music, politics, gender, sexuality, and football. Juliet's work has appeared in The Guardian, for whom uh, she documented her gender reassignment in a landmark series entitled a transgender journey in between 2010 and 2012, uh, as well as the London Review of Books, Granta, Sight and Sound, Freeze, Art Review, New York Times, and many more. Juliet has made two 16mm films, Approach with Trove, uh, co-directed with artist Care Wallwork in 2016, and You Will Be Free in 2017. She is also the founder and co-host of Suite uh, 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM, a radio program that looked at the arts in their social, cultural, political, and historical contexts and ran from 2017 to 2019, and which has been recently relaunched as a podcast funded by Patreon. Uh, Juliet, I wanted to ask you about the current political mood, uh, especially I'm interested in young uh, activists uh, with the Labour Party, and I know you have been very much involved and engaged in in political activism over the years of uh, Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. But I was wondering if you could tell us a bit, if you could talk to us a bit about specifically about how these young people who joined uh, in in large numbers the Corbyn um, uh, sort of project uh, over the last few years, if you could tell us a bit about how you think, how you've experienced yourself, but also how you, uh, how you think the general mood has evolved uh, currently in the aftermath of recent political developments. And, you know, as you know, we're interested in anxiety and capitalism. So uh, I would be interested in your thoughts around the specific types of anxiety that uh, these, these developments within the Labour Party might have um, sort of brought about for for their young supporters. Thanks, Harris. Yeah, that's a really uh, really interesting question. And yeah, as you say, I was very involved with the Corbyn project, which attracted this interesting mix of 
older people, I'd say people in their sort of 60s or even older than that, who experienced a lot of the defeats of the left in the 1980s, you know, things like the miners' strike and the print union strike um, at Wapping. Um, and then kind of under 40s, really, of which I was very much like the upper end of. Uh, but, you know, people aged between 20 and 40 who had never known anything other than post-actorism, really, who had been very adversely affected by the financial crash of 2008, who had, you know, maybe gone to university and maybe some of them had expected, some of them had expected more of a career path through going through to university and expected that getting a degree would guarantee them uh, not just jobs at the end, but interesting careers and found that these things just didn't materialise and instead found that they were saddled with huge amounts of debts that were introduced by Tony Blair's new Labour government immediately on taking power in 97 and raised over the years, but obviously most dramatically in 2010-11 after the student protests and after, of course, Nick Clegg, Liberal Democrats, promised that they would abolish tuition fees and then dramatically raise them in coalition with the Conservatives. So that's been a really big issue for young people. I think one of the best summaries I've seen of the sort of political cleavage in Britain was someone on Twitter a while ago, I forget who, who said that, you know, Thatcher made everyone middle class by letting them buy their council houses in the 80s, buying them into this property-owned democracy. And then Blair accidentally proletarianised and radicalised their children, paradoxically, by sending them to university saddling them with these huge debts, but also, um, you know, giving them access to a kind of intellectual community. So you have this, this young cohort that was a big part of the Corbyn movement that is like radicalised, theoretically aware, very kind of culturally and intellectually literate, uh, but, you know, with very few prospects and having to work incredibly hard um, you know, often more than one job in order to pay these like exorbitant rents and household bills uh, to live in cities where all the jobs are. And so this was very borne out in the 2019 election result in which Labour stacked up these super majorities in cities, particularly amongst the young, like under 45s, overwhelmingly voted for Corbyn's Labour. Um, and they lost um, an awful lot of um, suburban and post-industrial towns. And the towns that they lost were overwhelmingly ones where the average age has shot up in the last 20 years or so because young people have left, older people owning property have stayed and have overwhelmingly voted um, Conservative or you know, voted for the UK Independence Party and then shifted from there to the Tories. So, you know, that election result was was the end of the Corbyn project. Obviously, I don't need to relitigate the actual result. It was devastating for me and for all the young people who had really traipsed around the country during the campaign in the hope of countering mainstream media narratives, again, written by and for people over 50, really. Uh, but people trying to counter these mainstream media narratives by going door to door and finding overwhelmingly that it was the over 50s who were the most hostile to even talking about Corbyn's labour and the issues of precarity and social justice issues as well around like LGBT and particularly trans rights, anti-racism, um, anti-imperialism and, you know, opposition to British foreign policy as it ran from, you know, Blair and Cameron. So there's this real generational cleavage now. And, you know, in the aftermath of that um, election result, um, 
Sir Keir Starmer has been elected leader of the Labour Party and he is very much the leader of the Labour Party for 45 to 60 year old Guardian readers. Uh, that's his demographic. Um, and so a lot of like um, black and minority ethnic people in particular have been leaving the party in droves and a lot of younger people have been leaving the party in droves. That said, before the COVID lockdown, the atmosphere amongst the younger leftists that I came across at events like Bristol Transformed, for example, was nowhere near as pessimistic as I feared it was going to be. I think I mentioned that, you know, the, the Corbyn supporters tended to be under 40. And I think, you know, amongst the sort of 30 to 40 year olds in that cohort, so that's, that's me, we thought, you know, we're thinking, well, we're not going to get another chance probably until we're in our 60s. Uh, and it may be too late, you know, issues around climate change in particular are going to become more and more pressing. Uh, but the 20 to 30 year olds I encountered at these events were actually a lot more optimistic. They were aware that they hadn't lost their networks, you know, through Twitter in particular, but, you know, other places where they're networked. They hadn't lost new media, you know, things like Tribune, Navara, New Socialists that are growing up. Um, and appeal more to younger audiences than legacy media, which were the ones that really came down very hard on the Corbyn project. And they, they still had each other and their ideas and that the material conditions that led to the rise of Corbyn amongst younger people, you know, things like tuition fees, lack of career prospects, inability to acquire any property. These things hadn't gone away. And in fact, were only going to get worse. Um, obviously, the COVID outbreak has changed things somewhat because I think this younger left was and is very reliant on being able to meet physically. You know, doing politics via something like Twitter in particular is a real war of attrition. You know, it's, it's often kind of getting embroiled in arguments with people who are not arguing good faith, people who often have um, big crowds behind them that they've built up from legacy media. And people who just quite nakedly hate the young and hate any form of socialist politics and they're just there to try and crush it. So I think this sort of anxiety has shot up and you've seen, I won't go deeply into Labour Party factional stuff, I'm sure your listeners would love, uh, you know, can't get enough of it. But, um, you know, all I will say is that, you know, Starmer's leadership has essentially been much more of a right wing takeover of the party than was advertised. And again, people who were very embroiled in online politics, such as myself, saw that coming. I just had a, I yeah. just had a quick follow up on, on, on what you're just describing now, which I think is very interesting in terms of the, the, the distinction you're making between the 20 to 30 and the 30 to 40 in the aftermath of, of the, the sort of um, Keir Starmer um, leadership, uh, the, the, the start of his leadership. And I was wondering, so where, so, well, I, actually, it's, Two quick things that I was wondering. One is, where do you think that the political energy of those between 30 and 40s is kind of channeled now? I mean, what's, and is it just mere hopelessness that uh, is, it, we're getting? Um, and, and then conversely, in terms of those more, still more optimistic 20-something-year-olds, where, what do they do with their own uh, optimism? I mean, because they're not... Uh, channeling it within the Labour Party as it stands, I imagine. So, no, yeah. no, they're not. I mean, there's not going to be another election for four years. And, you know, within the first three months, Starmer's Labour Party has already made it very clear that it just doesn't want the left support. And I think it's in for a very, very nasty surprise come the next election, but we'll leave that. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that you pick up on that division. I think 
I mean, amongst my friends who are between 30 and 40, a lot of energy has gone into continuing to build up new media that was established during the Corbyn period. There's a real awareness amongst 30 to 40 year olds, I think, that we got absolutely fucked over by the media in this election. Um, and like I said, I mentioned that this media is dominated by people over 50. If you look at like who, for example, The Guardian has as its regular columnists, they're all well into their 40s, if not older. Um, there are some younger freelancers that they bring in. But actually, 10 years ago, a paper like The Guardian was giving much more space to younger writers than now. So I think some of those people who were writing for The Guardian 10 years ago, such as myself, are now much more aware of the need to build up new media. So I think that's more what we're doing, public speaking and writing um, in those sorts of spaces. My impression is certainly in London, probably in other cities, that 20 to 30 year olds are instead concentrating on more autonomous forms of organising. And of course, you've seen this in the coronavirus crisis. I think a lot of the people who were quite energised by canvassing for Corbyn liked the um, physical uh, solidarity that came with that. You know, there'd be hundreds of people in certain places, I think 700 people one night in Putney in early December. Um, and so you've seen the mutual aid groups that have sprung up during the COVID-19 crisis. And, you know, you don't have to have like read Kropotkin and all his theories um, to, uh, to get involved in these mutual aid groups. Although I have no doubt that some of these people have, you know, um, during, during this copious time they apparently have to, uh, to read, which of course you don't have because you have one, students now have to work, you know, three jobs. But a lot of that energy has gone into mutual aid groups. In London, it's gone into things like the London Renters Union, um, very early in the COVID crisis, the Starmer's Labour Party had to choose whether it was going to side with renters or landlords, and it came down emphatically on the side of landlords. So I think a lot of younger tenants are looking at things like renters' unions. Um, and union organising, I think one thing that might unite these two groups as well is, is an interest in union organising for more precarious workers. So things like the... Um, IWW, the International Works of the World, um, unions like that, uh, which have been set up for people on zero hours contracts, more precarious forms of pay, and are very aware of the need for migrant solidarity. I mean, you know, one of the, again, this is a generational cleavage, I think, uh, one of the frustrating things about a lot of bigger British trade unions, particularly the ones that are affiliated to the Labour Party, they're often affiliated to the right of the Labour Party, and some of them were quite sceptical about the Corbyn leadership and indeed did what they could to stymie it. But, you know, this sort of electoral electoralism that doesn't really account for migrants, imagines this kind of white working class of older British northern voters in particular, as being militantly anti-migrant and is constantly trying to kind of play catch up with the Tories on issues around migration and race. Uh, and that's a huge turnoff for, for younger voters, I think, who are more involved with this sort of union organising that brings in migrant perspectives a lot more and looks for points of solidarity rather than um, exclusion. I wanted to follow up on this question of, of a generational divide um, as, it, as it 
in some ways bisects your interest and, and your involvement in the, in the Labour Party and the fortunes of the left, but then also another topic that you write uh, about, which is the, the way in which these, these topics articulate themselves around gender, sexuality. And I was just looking at the latest YouGov poll from, from June 27th, which indicated that there's a, quite a significant split. So of the, the question that was posed was, to what extent do you think transphobia uh, is a problem in Britain today. And uh, in the age category of 18 to 24, 70% of respondents said that they agreed a great deal or somewhat, contrasting to only 55% in the age 50 to 65 range and only 50% in the 65 plus range. So, you know, at least a, a, a 15 to 20% spread between those age categories. Um, and to a large extent, it feels like there is a great difference between um, the way in which a younger generation has embraced these politics of liberation, of gender liberation, and the resistance to that amongst an older generation. Not, of course, to stereotype people by age, but simply to carry on this conversation about what is the, what is the, the shift that's happening here. How do you see that mapping on to questions around trans rights? Some of this is to do with, with the media. There's been a real attempt to import American-style culture wars into the UK because it's all that conservative politics has left now, really. And, you know, the sort of liberal wing of the Labour Party or sort of centrist wing, I should say, really, that took over during the Blair years and doesn't really have a lot of popular support but has all the institutional mechanisms which they really, you know, and has close links to the media, which were the things they used to, to bring down Corbyn. Those, 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 you know, that wing of the party is much more comfortable positioning itself as the good guys fighting the right than it is, you know, dealing with criticisms from the left on more economic grounds. So you have the situation where um, you have these two wings of the two main parties that are aiming for demographics, like I said earlier, sort of over 45, over 50. You know, you have the sort of right wing of the Labour Party, which is very much aimed at 45 to 60 year olds. And then the Conservative Party, whose voter base is almost exclusively pensioners now. And like younger fascists that it's trying to rile up again, because neither of those types of politics really have an answer to the socioeconomic conditions of the age. So they're much happier with politics being fought on these culture war lines but the interesting thing is that you know in the US the the Democrats are are more trans positive than the Labour Party here and this is because of you know a brand of feminism that was the orthodoxy here actually imported from the US but the orthodoxy here in the 80s and 90s um, which is you know I talked about these columnists who were well into their 50s that was what they grew up in who saw like being transgender, um, particularly being transsexual, as inherently reactionary as reinforcing the gender binary um, rather than breaking out of it. Um, and so position themselves as, you know, as the radicals and the trans people as the conservatives, whereas the conservatives, of course, see themselves as the conservatives and see trans people as like dangerous radicals who in undermining the gender binary and the gendered expectations that come with that, you know, threaten to undermine the basis of our society. So you have this sort of weird way in that, um, you know, trans people end up becoming the, um, the opposition uh, for both of these apparently opposed groups who, you know, economically have far more in common than either of them would really be prepared to admit. 
And then you have like younger people who, you know, didn't grow up with that brand of feminism and younger, more like socially progressive people who see it as like counterintuitive and, you know, also just unnecessarily restrictive. And I think just take a more um, socially liberal attitude to, to gender and, you know, just take a more a more kind of anything goes attitude to it. And it just anti the policing of, of gender identity in that way and you know you like i said in 10 10 years ago really the first half of the 2010s you saw more and more trans and non-binary voices break into mainstream media people like well then I mean, you mentioned my column in the guardian but more famously in the states people like janet mock and laverne cox these very intelligent and interesting trans women of color did a very very good job of uh, media advocacy uh writers like say paris lees or C and Esther over here, more recently, like performers like Travis Alabanza, all of whom were well under 40. And so there's that generational divide there as well. So we're doing this recording on July 7th, 2020, and we were just talking before the interview began about a, um, an open letter that was signed by an array of uh, luminary intellectuals on both sides of the Atlantic uh, for Harper's Magazine. Um, sort of taking aim at what they characterize as, shall we say, a, a culture of um, incivility, uh, what sometimes gets called sort of cancel culture on the internet. And I, I was wondering, you know, especially given the kind of threats that society is faced with now from the rise of the far right to climate change, the pandemic, to what can we attribute the incredible anxiety these almost exclusively older intellectuals are showing towards what they see as the, the threats of internet-based culture from youth, and, and specifically why this perception of threat and, uh, and this anxiety is so focused and, and, and built around often an anti-trans politics. You know, I think it's quite notable that a lot of the people who complain the loudest about cancel culture, uh, which, you know, is very much a term taken from the alt-right, uh, along with woke, um, which or the sort of pejorative use of woke, I should say, as, you know, a sort of uh, evolution of the political correctness gone mad discourse that we've sort of had a lot in the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, the people who complain the loudest about, counter, uh, about cancel culture in general are people who have very well-paid, um, very high-profile, regular columns somewhere. Um, and the younger writers who, um, you know, like myself, generally don't, um, you know, get the occasional freelance gig here and there, usually around another job, and, you know, cannot hope for anything like that sort of tenured position with a publication or university. So there's a power imbalance there that these writers don't really seem to see, and they don't really tend to think about issues around precarity, around, you know, things like structural racism and transphobia, for example. They don't really seem particularly willing or able to... Um, think about issues in those terms. Some of it is just a resentment of, um, of the young, I think. I think that actually explains quite a lot. You know, it's people's anxieties about getting old, no longer being relevant. And, you know, they have found a way to peg that anxiety to a set of thinking by which they can sort of posit themselves as the radicals and the daring ones, you know, rather than people whose ideas are just like old hat and who um, aren't really capable of adapting and I do think on a psychological level there's quite a lot of that and you know fear of being replaced supplanted by a younger generation 
uh, is quite a powerful thing psychologically for a lot of people, I think. I'm wondering if you could, what do you think about the, the sort of the direction of the, of the politics of uh, trans and non-binary recognition in, within the broader uh, sort of uh, radical left uh, movement that young people uh, have been engaged so actively in recent years? Um, so whether, you know, what you see, I guess it is a question also about the future now, turning towards the future. I mean, how do you think that the articulation of these, um, of, of uh, politics around uh, trans rights and, and trans recognition, you, you think it, it, uh, it could possibly, you know, how, how, that, that, how its, um, its future links to the future of the kind of politics that has been the heritage of, of re- recent years of uh, activism, such as the one we were just talking about earlier? Yeah, I mean, I think for trans people, you know, I talked about new media and the way new media can introduce like narratives into a public conversation. And I think for trans people, for an awfully long time, there's been a massive frustration with the like, oversimplification of our lives. You know, 10 years ago, it was a frustration with the media boiling everything down to our individual stories, particularly around transition and not making any space for our more kind of collective political issues around healthcare, in particular mental health and, you know, things like access to hormones and surgery, uh, the workings of gender recognition, um, social safety and housing, employment, you know, all the things we actually need to live um, and the effects of austerity on trans people, which were, so especially keenly by LGBT people, you know, you think of like the stripping back of the health systems, which meant to much longer waiting lists for hormones and surgery, for appointments with gender identity clinics, all that kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, in the first half of the 2010s, a lot of trans activists and writers and creatives were talking about these things in fairly big platforms. And then there was a real doubling down um, an insistence that all discussion around trans people had to be around the validity of our identities. And so in response to that, I think you got this kind of like, you know, the the trans argument, because we didn't really want to keep having this argument over and over again. The point of the argument wasn't for anyone to win the argument because it was unwinnable. The point was to kind of ground us down and bore and exhaust us until we gave up and went away. You got these kind of, you know, in response to these sort of bland tautologies, you know, the slogan you hear a lot like trans men are men, trans women and women, all of these things, which actually firstly just, you know, erases some of the more interesting and perhaps productive points of difference between like trans people and cis people, um, but points where we could build a politics around a solidarity rather than difference whilst recognising that these differences existed. Um, and I think at this point there is again a recognition that we need to go beyond that sort of simplicity that actually, you know, we need to be talking about the number of like trans women in men's prisons and vice versa. And, you know, in particular, that's a point where trans politics can link up with, um, you know, prison abolitionist politics, uh, but also, you know, things like the Black Lives Matter movement, which one of the things, of course, that's been doing is focusing on discrimination uh, in policing, you know, everything through to stop and search through to sentencing. So discrimination in policing and law. Uh, and that's a point of, um, of solidarity and similarity, I think. So I think there's an awareness of how, um, you know, trans issues 
can illuminate those struggles. They can also illuminate the ongoing anti-austerity movement because austerity has not gone away. Like I said, I think trans people, you know, a lot of trans people supported Corbyn's Labour, even though Corbyn's Labour had a very mixed record on trans issues. Corbyn himself was personally very supportive. Other people in the party and even on the left of the party, not always. But a lot of trans people, I think, gravitated towards Corbyn's Labour because it was... Um, it was very vocally anti-austerity and austerity so it was particularly hard. Um, so I think those are two big directions for, for trans politics in, in the 2010s. And so they're not that different to where they were 10 years ago, really. But I think that's, that's the nature of any political struggle is that you, you know, victories are not always secure. You often have to fight the same battles over and over again. And, you know, I think for like older trans people who, spent the 70s and 80s dealing with like gay and lesbian culture that wasn't always welcoming to trans people you know they they will very readily tell you that you have to fight these same battles over and over again i mean even i you know approaching 40 i'm of an age where i'm gearing up to fight the same battles in the 2020s as i fought in the 2010s so there's there's something cyclical there as we're coming to the end of uh, this conversation and you know, since we are talking about about the future uh, here in these these directions that you just sort of sketched out, um, I'm I'm wondering also if we could um, introduce a final sort of parameter, which I know is one that you are also involved in and interested in, uh, which is art and the role of art in all this and the politics of art um, in sort of articulating some of those uh, important kind of questions around radical politics and trans politics and, and transformative politics. Uh, what do you think in this current junction of the anxieties that we've been discussing and uh, the kind of current climate um, and the political disappointments, what do you think, um, and also as, as, an, as an artist um, uh, yourself and as, as a filmmaker, uh, uh, what what do you think the role of um, engaged art? Yeah, well, as you know, I mean, I um, you know I take these questions around you know an artist's responsibility politically and the political potentials of art incredibly seriously. You know, you mentioned my podcast at the top of the show, Sweet Two One Two, which is a very explicitly political arts podcast, and it's made on an absolute shoestring. It's made on you know a tiny amount of Patreon subscriptions. It's made at home in my bedroom a lot of the time. Um, and I bring that up uh, because this is has been, you know, a 10, 10 or even 12 year period, really, in which the arts in Britain have been systematically under, un, un, underfunded. Uh, there's also been an assault on arts education. I mean, you mentioned that I work at the Royal College of Art um, and witnessing huge precarity. I think 90% of the RCA's teachers, including myself, are basically on zero hours contract. Um, so there's basically been an attempt, you know, along with the stripping back of unemployment benefit, which sort of unofficially funded a lot of art and culture in Britain from the sort of 60s through to the 90s in particular, there's been a real assault on critical thinking. And this is deliberate, you know, this is as the neoliberal system collapses, this is a deliberate move to, you know, get rid of all these sort of troublesome artists and writers who might criticise socioeconomic policy. So it's no accident. 
So, and you know, obviously the COVID crisis looks like really exacerbating that. It looks like an awful lot of small theatres, cinemas, performance spaces, gig venues are going to disappear. And these are often the spaces in which trans and non-binary artists, musicians, writers, filmmakers um, began to assert themselves. Now, you know, artists, writers, creative people are an infinitely resourceful bunch of people and you know no matter how much successive governments in different countries have tried to kill the arts by whatever means they try they've never really quite managed to do it so i have every confidence that the sort of burgeoning younger trans and non-binary community will continue to find ways to express themselves whether it's through like kind of pop-up gigs or uh, zines or things that happen online. I mean, you know, there's a lot of um, a lot of trans artists and non-binary artists who are really interesting and creative with their online presence. I mean, somebody you might focus on is someone like Juliana Huxtable, who um, you know has a very like notable digital presence. Um, there's people like ContraPoints, of course, Natalie Wynn, who's a very controversial figure in the trans community, but, you know, has built up a big audience, you know, partly by developing this incredibly distinctive uh, and incredibly stylish um, visual aesthetic on a shoestring, really, and just, you know, uploading it onto YouTube. So, you know, the production costs of what she does are pretty low. Um, someone like Andrea Long Chu, who, again, you know, very controversial in the trans community, not always popular. Um, but it's very, very good at Twitter and started building up an audience there, but, you know, also uh, does a lot of academic and um, journalistic writing too. And these things cross over in really interesting ways. So, you know, I do feel fairly confident that trans and non-binary people, younger ones in particular, will continue to find ways around both the mainstream media um, and the defunding of arts organisations uh, in quite, you know, creative and interesting ways. And, you know, I talked earlier about not losing our networks, and we do still have these networks, despite, you know, the catastrophic election result here, despite, you know, the defeat of Bernie Sanders in the US, who, of course, is a very old man, but was representing a young demographic in the same way there that Corbyn was here. You know, despite the um, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, you know, there's there's cause for cause for cautious optimism here and you know they can't lock us out of mainstream culture forever either uh, however hard they try you know that changing of the guard is coming max unless if you had a final question no no i think that ending on a positive note is a is a rare a rare experience and luxury for us. So Indeed. The first time I've done it since about December. So, yeah. Um. So, Juliet, I would like to thank you again for joining us uh, in our podcast. It was, uh, it was fantastic to, to have you with us. Thanks. A fascinating conversation um, with, with somebody who's um, really, I think, got the thing that I, I like the most in our in many of the guests that we've interviewed, which is a quite a synoptic view of many different elements of what's happening politically, culturally, economically, uh, in this moment. I think um, the the tensions that Juliet brings up about the the differences between generations, I think is something that we're returning to again and again in this podcast and in our own research. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, as, as we were discussing uh, in that interview, there's an increasing backlash from an older generation 
towards a younger generation. Um, and, and I want to kind of delve into this a little bit because I find it quite curious. And I think Juliet rightly points out that there's a sense that this is maybe something that often happens and has happened in previous generations where an older generation, especially older generation of perhaps people who once struggled or continue to struggle in their own minds, at least for social justice uh, or against capitalism, feel that somehow the discourse has moved out of their hands, that they're no longer able to keep up with uh, what young people are interested in. And then this creates a kind of a scene of a kind of reaction. But I think what I really appreciate about Juliet's analysis is how deeply material this is and how it's connected to people's uh, lives and well-beings in a competitive, unequal capitalist economy, and that there is something about the way that young people are articulating their demands that has such a strong materialist resonance that is also somewhat materially threatening in a certain sense, or at least a sense to be materially threatening to an older generation as well. I appreciated the way that she makes the links between the way that, uh, you know, in spite of the way that far-right uh, conservative and even sort of liberal quasi-left discourse seeks to frame trans issues simply around the politics of personal expression. In fact, trans issues, as, as Juliet makes clear, have to do with questions of healthcare under austerity, have to do with the vectors of race and racism, policing, prisons, carceral institutions, have to do with economics have to do with how, where people work, how much they earn, what sort of resources in society they have access to. And mm. it seems to be that the kind of the, the strident insistence from a sort of older generation of would-be leftists and would-be intellectuals, such as those characterized by the recent open letters that's been sent, but many others in the pages of major daily newspapers and, and news magazines, is one that constantly wants to reduce the magnitude of these struggles to simply the kind of uh, pathologies of the culture war. When in fact, I think as Juliet points out so importantly, that has always been a kind of um, segmentation uh, of, of struggles that has been imposed from the outside, whereas those who are actually involved in those struggles are at the forefront of theorizing the connection between the material, the cultural, the personal, the political. And I think that has very important ramifications for then our thinking about the question of mental health and mental health activism among students. Because I think what it implies, as we've explored with some other guests, is that uh, struggles within the anxious university and for better services for students who are struggling with what today are diagnosed or are named as mental health issues, in fact, uh, also strike beyond the limited confines of that politics and speak in some very profound way to a struggle over the material uh, fabric of society as well as the cultural, uh, interpersonal and psychological fabric of society as well. And yeah, I, I share this, this um, your thoughts here and I, I agree with you. And I, in fact, you know, I was just having another look at that list of names of academics that, uh, that sent that letter to Harper's and I was just looking at uh, I mean there are a few usual suspects that are kind of uh, are uh, central figures within that mm. kind of centrist liberalism in uh, intellectual kind of m milieu but you know I see here interestingly you know as a sociologist I was interested to see Arlie Hochschild and who is someone actually that has uh, carried out 
some really interesting research into the kind of grassroots uh, right-wing kind of neo-fascist populist movements in the U.S. In, in the kind of years leading up to, to Trump. And, you know, it, it, I think it's really interesting that how, you know, what came out, what Ali Horschel came with, up with uh, at the end of that study was the kind of uh, a need to look beyond the, the sort of, um, uh, the, the, the divide between the uh, liberal intellectuals and the kind of grassroots, kind of redneck, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, movements and the need to look beyond the the empathy wall she was calling you know as you know she, she writes about emotions and the empathy that one needs to develop and yet you know it is uh, as Juliet was very uh, powerfully uh, arguing you know it is uh, the, those feelings of solidarity and empathetic solidarity are actually not to be found in these kind of coalitions uh, that, uh, between, you know, uh, liberal intellectuals and, and the kind of political, the political center that aims to host them, but rather in a much more, uh, uh, in much more radical formations. And I think for me, this is really what uh, speaks to me a lot. And I, I find really interesting how the, this quest for radical political spaces, both within and beyond the kind of electoral politics, that can articulate uh, the, the the kind of you know issues that Juliet uh, has been has been talking about in a way that is um, influential and consequential. And these definitely you know what I really share with with Juliet is this kind of disgust for this you know continuous return of the center as the uh, you know the the answer and the 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 kind of this beast that keeps coming back to this vampire that keeps coming back to kind of take ownership of and and um, exploit the, the 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 kind of younger generations agendas uh, and, and such as we see with with um, the issues around uh, trans rights. Um, so yeah, it's 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 just a bit of a sad thought for the kind of uh, intellectuals that seem to be strong advocates of, of that kind of movement that Juliet is, is very, very powerfully uh, kind of, I think, deconstructed in her, both today, but also in her writing and her activism. Quite, I mean, of, of all times for these, uh, these intellectuals to come out with a shared statement, it, it, it strikes me as, as both strange, but also perfectly revealing that, that this, this would be what they would consider to be their important work in this moment. It's, it, it's very sad. So we've come to the end of uh, another episode of The Order of Unmanageable Risks. So from me, from Aris Komporoso Safanasiu, and from Max Haven, um, this is goodbye for now. And for more information, you can head over to our website, anxious.community.com.